are moving through Acts, we are in chapter 22, and we're getting to the point in Acts where um, it's, most of it is basically Paul in prison. He's going to be in two different, uh, two different settings, but that's pretty much what's, uh, what the rest of this is all about. Story doesn't seem to be ending the way we thought it would end when it first started. But remember, our point in, in this sermon series is, is not just to read the history of the, of the first church, the church in the first century, but we want to see what God had called that church to be, gave the church what its job was, what its characteristics was, the resources that were provided to that church. Because ultimately our prayer is to become more and more his church. And so we find Paul. Last week, John uh, preached on uh, the passage right before this where, where Paul's been falsely accused. Just imagine, like, if you were just down at, you know, Ala Moana or walking around downtown Honolulu, and then all of a sudden, people thought you were a criminal. And everybody's like, that's the guy they were talking about on the news. That's the one everybody's, and people just, you know, just rush after you and, and they're, you know, accusing you of all of these things. And then the, the, it just takes on like a mob mentality and, and people just start like beating on you. And then the police come to rescue you. And they give you some protection. If you're like me, like if that happened to me, you know, my first thing is, thank you for protecting me. Let's get out of here. Let's get out of here before it gets worse. But here's Paul, falsely accused, taken over by a mob, out of control, being beaten to death. But before they can finish the job, the Roman soldiers come they protect him. If you were in that situation, again, you're probably a lot like me. Let's just go. You know, Paul was a Roman citizen. He could have just said, look, dude, I'm a Roman citizen. Get me out of here. Let's go. But no. Paul says, I want to talk to them. I want to talk to them. Now, maybe you're the kind that says, I would do that. I would say like, that mob, now I got these soldiers with all their weapons? Yeah, let's talk now. I'm going to give you a good talking to, guys. Even if we dared to speak, what would we say? And I'm pretty sure it probably, if you're like me, wouldn't it be along the lines of what Paul is about to say. So in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, 
Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. What does Paul do when he's in this front of this angry mob, now protected by Roman soldiers? He doesn't just take off, he wants to talk, and what does he say? He basically shares with them what Christ had done in his life. He shares with them the most important thing he could share with them. It's as though Paul knows that a lot of things could go wrong here that he could be imprisoned, he knows he's gonna to go to Rome. He knows eventually that's where he's gonna end up. This might be his last opportunity to ever speak to this many of his, of his people. And from the very beginning and throughout everything that he says, he is sharing, he is sharing without equivocation. He's not in any way like watering down anything about the gospel, but he's sharing it in such a way that he knows these people will listen for as long as they can. His very first words, brothers and fathers. His very first statement about himself, I am a Jew. That's how he's, he's defining himself. He doesn't start off by saying, I am a follower of the way. He is, but that's not where he begins. By calling them fathers, he's, he's even showing his submission to those who are the leaders. As he doesn't assert his citizenship. He doesn't even address the charges. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, John read from last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when Paul gave this, gave this great statement where he talks about, to the Jews I became a Jew. And he goes through this list of all the things that he was willing to do, willing to become, with the ultimate goal that he says, I became all things to all people so that I might win some. I became all things to all people so that I might win some. When he says all things to all people, he's not talking about, oh, I compromised. Oh, those drug addicts, oh, I became a drug addict too, so, you know, we could connect. No, he's not talking about that at all. He's not talking about in any ways compromising truth, and even being untrue to himself. He wasn't going to go do what now I'm at the age I no longer can do, which is try to dress like a college student or teenager and hang out with them. I think people see through that now. They realize it doesn't look right on you. Um, 
He's not gonna be untrue to himself. He's not gonna be untrue to the gospel. But what he's recognizing is that within all of us is the ability to connect to other people and to understand them. And certainly, when it comes to the Jewish people, what was Paul the most? He was Jewish, thoroughly Jewish. So that he might win some. Not all. It doesn't say so that I can win all. Paul doesn't have this, this thought that, hey, if I share the gospel, people will have to respond. It's so that I might win some. And who are the some? We, we don't even know. We don't even know who the some are. Um, we don't get much here. The only possible some is not one we would expect. There's, there's one theory about why names are included in the Gospels and why names are included in the book of Acts. Why do we know who Bartimaeus is? Why is he named when so many other people Jesus healed are not named? And the prevailing thought is that he's named because he became a believer and he was part of the early Christian community. The only other people that are really named are like, like public figures, people who were well known. We're gonna learn the name of the tribune, Claudius. Why do we know his name? You know, even if he won Tribune of the Year, we don't care, we don't know. Why is his name included? I'm not telling you this is for sure why, but if it's following the pattern, if he's not a governor or a king or an emperor, then perhaps it's Claudius. He's the one. He's the sum. Paul was not just being a witness to the Jewish people that were there. He was aware of everyone who was around him. If this is his last opportunity, he will do what he would have done if it was his first opportunity. He will make Christ known. The reason this looks so natural and so real to Paul is because Paul was always this way. If Paul was going through hard times, good times, if he was just on a ship and it was boring because it's days and days and days and you know, you're just out there, what is he gonna do? He's gonna, he's gonna make Christ known. He's going to be, for the next four years at least, he's going to be in prison or under house arrest. What is he going to do for the next four years? Make Christ known. It's so weird when you think about it, but when you think about not just who Paul is, but who God is, that when Paul gets to the, to the, last two years when he's in prison in Rome. He very well could have been confined to a room that is smaller than the stage. And from that room, he had more of a kingdom impact than any Christian sense. 2,000 years later, we're still reading letters that he wrote from that room. And I say this as like encouragement to us all. Encouragement that, that if we have the mindset of Paul, if we know that in any situation, no matter how we find ourselves, that there is opportunity to make Christ known, we can. We can. He did. Now, 
2,000 years from now, people might not be reading your letters or your emails or your texts. But you can make Christ known in every situation. For Paul, it became natural. For me, it's not so natural. I don't go into every situation thinking, God, how can I make Christ known in this situation? But I think it's something that we all can do. And you might be like, oh, but, 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 like, that's kind of risky, especially where he was. Like, there's that mob there. Why didn't he think about those poor Roman soldiers? Like, how are they going to protect themselves from that mob? Or why, why didn't he just try to, like, make peace and just kind of walk away before violence occurred? You know, wasn't he risking his life? This is the other thing that's about Paul. Paul, after this Damascus Road experience, Paul never risked his life. Never risked his life. You might go, how can that be? There was a time when, when he was like stoned to death. He would go into to cities. He would go into the synagogues. You know, he was beaten. He was thrown to prison. How can you say he never risked his life? He never risked his life because it was no longer his life. When he became a Christian, he surrendered his life to Christ. It wasn't his life to risk anymore. It was Christ's life. I wish I got that more. I understand that intellectually. I understand that looking at Paul. But I wish I understood that more. I wish that was more in my life. That it is not me risking my life because it is not my life. It is his. And I think this is such an important thing for us to understand. I think the example of Paul is so, it, it's, it's always been important through 2,000 years of history. It's even more important now. And I think because the world is kind of cycling back, Western society is cycling back. The Greco-Roman paganism that we find in the first century, it never really died. It just changed names. In some places it went into hiding. In some places, it was even Christianized. But make no mistake, it didn't die. And it's coming back. It's coming back more boldly than ever. And what does this mean? It means that the world we live in is increasingly, boldly becoming opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world we live in is becoming increasingly, boldly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you know this. If you just watch um, media, entertainment media, you would just watch, you know, um, whether it's TV shows or, or movies or news or, you know, if, you know, if you're on the internet and it's podcasts and more and more, what are you finding? You're finding that not only are people speaking out against Christianity, they're speaking out against any type of faith. You want to find faith in general and oftentimes Christianity specifically ridiculed? Ah, just carefully watch. Sometimes you don't even have to carefully watch, but carefully watch. TV shows and movies. That's just what's coming out in popular media. I mean, you, you increasingly, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, like, I love science fiction. Unfortunately, so much of it I just can't watch anymore. Because one of the presuppositions of science fiction is that if you're religious, you're ignorant, you're immature, you're backwards. The more advanced worlds, 
have overcome that. And they've left God and all the belief in God in the past, where it belongs, according to them. And that's just media. That's not talking about other people who are constantly out there. And you might go, well, I'm not hearing this. I'm not hearing this. That's because you're still watching Murder, She Wrote reruns, okay? You need to update your viewing list. I'm not actually telling you to do it because it's not that edifying. You're not listening to the podcast your kids are listening to. You're not seeing all of that that's being just put into their heads again and again. And it's causing some young people like this crisis because they love their parents who are believers. They see the faithfulness of their parents. They know their parents are part of a Bible-believing church and then they see how Bible-believing Christians are portrayed in the media. They hear their favorite celebrities or podcasters ranting against how stupid or how ignorant or how fascist or whatever they are. And it's causing a lot of young people like this crisis. These are my parents. I know what they believe. They don't seem to be like what's being described. And yet, they, they want to believe that this is truth. My parents are the only exceptions, I guess, is the way they're going to have to deal with it. But make no mistake, there are versions of the gospel that are acceptable. The kind of light version of the gospel, the gospel that's just all about love and about caring for one another, that version is still acceptable in society as long as you don't make any exclusive claims about Jesus Christ. As long as you say, you know, Christianity is about love, gospel is about love, let's love one another, and as long as you don't define love or say crazy things like we say, which is it's impossible for you to love like God without faith in Jesus Christ and being transformed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as long as you don't say those things, you can have this kind of light gospel. But if you if you believe in the full gospel, the full gospel is, is increasingly being opposed in our society. You see, there's two things going on here in this passage. And it's something that we usually try to wrestle with on Wednesday nights. And you notice, John and I, we always mention Wednesday nights. If you're not coming Wednesday nights, you're missing something. You really are. You're gonna still get something out of Sunday morning, but you're missing so much more of the context and the depth. Plus, it gives you days from Wednesday today to really be thinking about the text, to be reading the text. If I could even give you guys homework, I would tell you, Like, next week, already read the text for next week. Be praying about it. Be thinking about it. And then come Wednesday and study it with us together. Or just, if you can't come Wednesday, watch the recording. Or if you can't possibly do that, you know, come bug John and I. We'd love to sit down and talk to you guys But when the two things that are going on here, one is like, why is Luke telling this story? Why is he telling the story this way? And, and it always goes back to the reason Luke is writing the, the book of Acts. He's writing it so that people, first of all, can know the truth of the gospel and see the effects of the gospel in the church, but he's also writing it, as Paul says in the first verse, as a defense. He's saying, this is who we are as Christians. This is what we believe. This is what we've done. And the question that's over here that he never asks, 
but we know he's implying is this. This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what we've done. Why do you hate us so much? Why are you trying to kill us? Why do you take pleasure in seeing us tortured in the Colosseum? Why? What have we done? We try to serve one another. We try to be good citizens. We help our neighbors. I mean, we even will help you who hate us. We love you. Why do you hate us so much? And what Paul is saying here, the same thing. He's saying, this is my story. This is where I started. This is what happened when I was confronted by Jesus Christ. And this is my mission. Why do you hate us? The other thing that's going on here is Paul actually presenting his, his conversion. And in so doing, he's teaching us some important things about when, when we share the gospel. Sharing the gospel is, is not just sharing the scriptures or sharing the, the precepts and the principles of the gospel and the parts of the gospel. That is really important to do. It's something that on Monday nights, you know, John's been leading people in doing, understanding the, the full sense of the gospel. But there's another part to it. And the other part is, what have you experienced because of the gospel in your life? What have you experienced because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of your receiving of the Holy Spirit, of your transformation? What is your story? Paul is sharing his story. And the first thing we see in verse, in, after he kind of connects with them with his Jewishness and he talks about who his teacher as his Pharisee teacher Gamaliel was and that he was brought up in the strict manner of the law and he is in no way, by the way, presenting that in a negative sense. If he had presented it in a negative sense, the people would have gotten upset, but he's not. He's saying, he's saying, this is how I was brought up. This is where I was born. This is how I was educated. But then, in verse four, in verse four, he talks about how he persecuted the Christians, even unto death. For Paul, I think when Paul thought about his life before being encountered by Jesus Christ, when he thought about the things that he did that really revealed what was in his heart, this is what he thought about. And I think it's an important thing for us to think about because I, what Paul is showing us is that he often considered the greatest Christian who ever lived he never forgot his sin. Christians, we never forget our past sin. Who was Paul? Yes, he was brought up in the law. He was brought up to be this, this Pharisee, this person that everybody else in society looked up, as a keep, looked up to as a keeper of the law. But how he identifies himself is, I'm a murderer, I'm a hater. You see, we have a problem with this, and the reason we have a problem with this is because I think sometimes we have a problem with this is because we haven't fully embraced grace and forgiveness. And so when people talk about, one of my friends used to call it, his BC days, and he meant before Christ, right? He said, these are my BC days. And whenever he talked about his BC days, you know, a lot of times it was like, just almost like fondly reminiscing about sin. About whatever it was, whether it was 
some party he went to or something he did with his friends or whatever. It was almost a fond remembrance of my sin. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Another reason we have trouble with this is because it's because if we haven't really embraced grace and forgiveness, remembering our past sin keeps bringing up guilt and fear. It generates negative emotions for us. I'm pretty sure, I don't think this is true, that any of you did anything as heinous as what Paul did. I don't think any of you have murdered, and not just one, multiple people. People that weren't even fighting back. People that were just good people trying to live their lives. If anybody should have been like overwhelmed by guilt and wanted to forget all of that past, it was Paul. But Paul remembers. But Paul is not remembering out of guilt. He's not remembering out of fear. His remembrance of his past sin was not to keep him down. Instead, what we see in the life of Paul and what we hear when, when he shares his testimony, he talks about that. And then what results is humility. To think like, I know where I was headed. I was well along the way. And Jesus rescued me. His empathy. He's he's not saying, be like me because I was never like you. He's like, no, I was exactly where you were. As a matter of fact, I was better at hating than you are. You guys are amateurs compared to me. I am a superhero of hate. You guys needed a whole mob. Mobs. Overrated. I could do it all myself. He has empathy. Not not empathy in the sense of, oh, you know, I've been where you are, so it's okay. Everything will be all right. Just keep on hating. No. Because he knows how blind you are when you're blinded by sin. He knows how enslaved you are when you're enslaved to sin. When he remembers his past sin, he remembers it with awe towards God, that God would dare to love even someone like him. He remembers with gratitude and grace. You know, we we, we talk about this, but I don't think, like I said, I'm saying so many things today that I know intellectually, but it's so hard to unleash in my life. But if, if there was actually a pill you could take that would give you humility, gratitude towards God, that would give you a deeper sense of grace and love you'd be like, that's exactly what I need. That's exactly what I need. You know, I can get there the old-fashioned way, you know, growing slowly in the Lord. But man, if you can jumpstart me there, that'd be awesome. Paul remembers his past sin, and that's his jumpstart. There's too many Christians too many Christians who think that without Christ, I would still be a pretty good dude. In fact, even if I never came to faith in Jesus Christ, God would have a really hard time like making the case against me because I really wasn't that bad. I really wasn't that selfish. I was a pretty good dude. The less 
you think of the, the importance, the, the tragedy of your sin, the less you think of the tragedy of your sin, the less you'll think of the grace of God. The more I understand the tragedy of my sin, the more I understand that bitterness that gripped my heart, that selfishness, that pride, even if it didn't show up because I never had opportunities or I just kept it all hidden. And if I don't really understand the tragedy of that, I really can't understand the awesomeness of God's grace. The more we know God, the more we know who we are and what he rescued us from, the more we live with a sense of awe and gratitude, not fear and guilt. That's, that's my kind of action point, is remember who you were before Christ. Remember where you were going. Remember what kind of gripped your mind and your thinking. And then know who he has made you to be today. By the way, there is a byproduct here. And the byproduct is this. If even after you came to faith in Jesus Christ, there are things in your BC days that you've never really reconciled, you've never really confessed, the byproduct is this. If you start thinking about the past and, and it just dredges up all this guilt and this fear, that's a way of saying you haven't dealt with it. You haven't really repented and asked for forgiveness for that particular thing. Do it. The second thing we see is this story that starts in verse six. When a familiar story, Saul's on the way to Damascus to go arrest more Christians. And then he's confronted. It's, it's the noonday sun is up and a light even brighter than the noonday sun shines. And he falls to the ground. And at first he doesn't seem to know who it is. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then in verse 10, Paul gives a very simple confession of faith. This is the moment of his like true conversion. And he says, what shall I do, Lord? He now knows who, who is that represented in that light. The light has identified himself as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so he says, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. I am calling. Before I just said Lord, because anytime somebody that powerful, you always would, you know, kind of honor them. But even after he knows who he is, Jesus Christ, this man who he had spent most of the last two or three years hating and wanting to wipe out his followers and thinking he was deluded and crazy and all of that, that, when the light shines and the voice says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he not just calls him Lord, he says, what, 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 what now? What do you want me to do? We sometimes complicate Christianity and becoming a Christian. Paul is, writes very long, complex you know, discussions of theology, but then he often can just boil things down. And here in this question, what shall I do, Lord? This is really What's at the heart of Christianity? Yes, we need to acknowledge we are sinners. Yes, we need, to, we need to confess that we are sinners. We need to repent. We need to believe. 
But ultimately, the outcome is this. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord and saying, what do I do next? Unfortunately, this gets so lost in a lot of modern Christianity where it's, it's not, what shall I do, Lord? It's, you know, thank you, God, for, or th- thank you, Jesus, for getting me out of my troubles. Thank you for forgiving me for my sins. Thank you for all of that. I'll call you when I need you next. That's, a lot of modern Christianity is like that. Got you on speed dial. You know, I'll call you when I need you next. Not Paul. What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? This is this watershed moment in Paul's life. He's, his life is never going to be the same. And I want you to think now, remember, there's this mob out there listening to him tell these stories. At any time, they could go nuts again. But they don't. They're hanging on every one of these words. When he said Jesus of Nazareth, they could have been like, oh, that crazy guy, they could have been so mad. But they're hanging on every word. This is the... key moment in Paul's life and really it's one of the key moments in human history. If there is no Damascus Road experience, so much of what Paul is going to do is going to have to be done in another way. For Paul, it was this moment of clarity. He knew all of a sudden why he had studied all that he had studied. And he, he saw, he understood what was missing. And he didn't understand it in all the details, but he understood this. Jesus was missing. What he had was words and beliefs and rituals, but he didn't have Jesus. He's going to come, as we read his his writings later on, his letters later on, he's going to come to understand that, that, that the cross, that he, he didn't even get the significance of the cross other than that's the place where they murdered that, that Jesus guy who up until this point he felt deserved that or worse. But he is soon going to come to realize that the cross of Jesus Christ was the revelation of God himself. That the cross was this picture of the holy God who creates and loves and redeems and is full of grace. That cross which would, to him would have been just hideous and brutal became beautiful. And I think one of the points Paul's trying to make here and, and he's, he's talking about how he was so zealous that he just was willing to imprison and kill people. And then he's confronted by Jesus. By Jesus. And, and it's different. The hatred is gone. The bitterness is gone. It's been replaced, and he probably doesn't fully understand it at this, these initial moments, but it's been replaced with, with love. And it's been his like heart's cry that more and more of his own people, the Jewish people, would have that same thing happen, that heart gripped in sin gripped in hatred, gripped in bitterness, gripped in negativity, judgmental, all of that, that it would be transformed. A 
That's what Luke is doing. Luke is showing, like, this is what happens when we don't follow Jesus. We become mobs. This is what happens when Jesus Christ transforms a heart. We become like Paul. And the action point is really simple here. Remember how you came to Christ. Remember the moment. If you have never written down your testimony, write it down. One of the things that, you know, my mom was a Christian for almost her entire life, and, and I remember when she died, we, we looked everywhere. We looked everywhere to find something where she wrote about how she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And all we could find is we found like this little paragraph she wrote once when she was going through some, like a discipleship thing. And she wrote a little paragraph. That's all we had. But it was a treasure. Of all the stories you can pass down to your children and your grandchildren, pass down the most important story in your life, not how you met your wife or your husband, not what it was like when, you know, your kids were born or when they got married and all of that. Those are all great moments. But the greatest moment of our life should be when our dead heart became alive again. When our enslavement to sin, we were freed. When the guilt that we carried was taken away. Don't lose that. Reconnect with that. I'm going to tell you, I don't care if you've been going to church for this is your first day or you've been here for, you know, for decades. If you have never had that experience with Jesus Christ, you need to talk to us. We can't manufacture it for us, but we can answer your questions and we can help you understand. Christianity is not just something we, a, a, a code of ethics that we adopt. We kind of sign up for the club. It's life transformation. Then we see Paul, the greatest Christian, brilliant, brave, effective, qualified. Paul, the first thing he does is he's told to go and wait and he has to be helped. And he's helped by Ananias. I think this is a reminder to us all that something that we've been talking about throughout the book of Acts, that Christianity was never meant to be lived alone. Christianity was never meant to be experienced alone. It was always meant to be experienced within the church. And again, there was this Jesus and me movement that grew out of like the latter part of the, second, this, of the 20th century that was just this idea that all I need is Jesus and me. And okay, church is okay for some people, but all I really need is Jesus and me. That is not from the Bible. It is not Christianity. In fact, I sometimes think it, it is, it, I sometimes think it is the height of arrogance to say, I don't need the church. And you know why it's the height of arrogance? Because it sounds kind of holy. All I need is Jesus. I don't need the church. Sounds kind of holy. But Jesus said, you need the church. Jesus said, in fact, when you become a Christian, you become part of the body of Christ. What do you think that means? But we've lived in this church is optional age for so long that all we care about is, is not life in the community of faith, 
But did you pray a prayer at some point in your life, regardless of how you live the rest of your life? Christianity was never meant to be lived alone. And if you've been living your Christianity alone for so long, for too long, even if you've been in a church, but you still are in the church, but you're just kind of alone all the time, ask God to provide Christian friends to walk with you through life. Do not walk alone. Paul didn't walk alone. If you can come convince me you're a better Christian than Paul, maybe we'll consider it. And then finally, point we keep coming back to, God saves us so that he might use us. This is where Paul loses the crowd. He loses the crowd because he finally gets to the, this last point where he says, okay, I was in the temple, I was in a trance, I have this dialogue with God. You know, everybody's listening because you know that's what used to happen to the prophets. That was like 400, 500 years ago and now Paul's having that same experience in the temple. They're listening until he says what God told him to do. And as soon as he said, God told me to go to the Gentiles, they go crazy again. The point here of Paul's testimony, which finishes the testimony, is that God doesn't just save us to save us, he saves us so that he might use us. And if you truly understand Christianity, if you truly understand who God is and, and that God loves us and why he created us and all of that, if you really understand that, you will understand that there is no greater honor than to be used by God. There's no greater honor to be put in the game and not sit on the bench. And you may go, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know, um, you know, okay, I get it. I should be used. What should I do? Well, I, I don't know exactly. We can always talk about it. But I want to go back to this, this three-fold action. Know the gospel. In other words, study. Be a disciple. Be a part of what's going on in this church as we deep, dig deep into his word. Share the gospel tell others and live the gospel. Don't let it just be words. Don't let it just be good ideas, principles and precepts, but live the gospel in your life. Speak the gospel. Share from scripture, but also share about how Jesus has not just changed your life, but is changing your life. And I hope that more and more we can add to that what Jesus is doing in our church. God saves us so that he might use us.